All right, good morning. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Judges chapter 9 and look at verses 1 through 21. Judges chapter 9, verses 1 through 21. Open your Bible, navigate on your device. While you're navigating, you might want to silence your device. The topic in these verses, Gideon's youngest son tells a fable to the men of Shechem that personifies his evil half-brother Abimelech as a bramble bush. The title of our message, Lord, I was born a brambling man. Huh? Huh? Thank you. Anyway, let's, let's pray. Father, this morning as we continue to work our way through this uh, unusual but insightful book, I pray that you would speak to us. It wasn't written to us really or about us. It tells a terrible tale in the lives of the nation of Israel, Lord, but obviously there's application for us and we believe that you're in the text as well. And so I pray that you would um, help us to understand the meaning of it for those to whom it was written and the application of it for us. We need the Holy Spirit, Lord, in order for that to happen. And so we pray that he would have free reign in this place and in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. According to a very recent Gallup poll, more Americans would say that the Bible is a book of fables than it is the word of God. Gallup reported that a mere 24% of Americans believe the Bible should be taken literally. By comparison, 26% view the Bible as a book of fables legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by men. This marks the first time in four decades that biblical literalism has not surpassed biblical skepticism. Answering this charge, one apologetic source says the following, the Bible is most assuredly not a fairy tale or fable. In fact, the Bible was God-breathed, and this essentially means God wrote it. Its human authors wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's why this divinely woven text of nearly three quarters of a million words is perfect in harmony from start to finish, contains no contradictions, even though its 66 books have 40 different authors from different walks of life, written in three different languages and taking nearly 16 centuries to complete. In defense of the Word of God, we would cite its accuracy, which has been confirmed by history and biology and geology and astronomy. We could cite the over 2,000 fulfilled prophecies, most of them extremely detailed, with no way of them being fulfilled other than by divinely. And we could cite the millions upon millions of changed lives attesting to the power of our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible is not a fairy tale, but it does contain at least two fables. A fable is a short story, typically with animals or inanimate things as speaking characters that conveys a moral. In 2 Kings, we read this. And Jehoash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, The thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son as a wife. And a wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle. That was Jehoash's way of saying that Amaziah's request was like that of a weed making a demand upon a mighty tree, and the weed was about to be destroyed. The other fable is in our text today. In it, the youngest son of Gideon, Jotham, exposes his half-brother Abimelech as being altogether evil and destructive. 
He puts it in the form of a fable involving an olive tree, a fig tree, a grapevine, and a bramble. Abimelech is not like an olive tree or a fig tree or a grapevine bearing fruit. No, he is a bramble, a weed good only for starting destructive fires in those groves or vineyards. Jotham did not have us in mind in the telling of this fable. Nevertheless, there is a point of contact for us. We'll see that the fruit-bearing trees and vine were selfless while the bramble was selfish. And since we too can be either selfless or selfish, there's a moral here for us. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, live selfish and you kindle a destructive fire. Or number two, live selfless and you contribute delightful fruit. Let's take a look at kindling a fire in verses one through six. Phil Cook, president and CEO of Cook Pictures, It's a media production and consulting company based in Los Angeles. He advises many of the largest Christian and nonprofit organizations in the world on media issues. In an email to the Christian Post, he wrote, If you filmed the Bible, much of it would be R-rated and some of it possibly X-rated. That's the remarkable thing about the Bible. It tells honest, authentic, true stories. So why do we spend so much time trying to convince Hollywood that serious films about real life that push the edge aren't welcomed by the faith community? I think the culture would respect our message much more if we stopped producing just cheesy G-rated films and started telling gritty stories about real life. Now, whatever you think about his analysis, it's true that the Bible is full of some really edgy, gritty material. And I would suggest that if you want to get into it, you'd start with the book of Judges. Because if you want grit, the post-Gideon period would be high on that list. As part of his unspiritual eulogy in chapter 8, we learn that Gideon had multiple wives that had produced for him 70 sons. He also had a girl on the side in the Gentile city of Shechem. This concubine also bore Gideon a son. They named him Abimelech, which means my father is king. Now Gideon was not king, but he acted like he was. And when he died, it created a leadership void. Abimelech rushed in to fill it. And so, verse 1 of chapter 9. Then Abimelech, the son of Jerobel, went to Shechem and his mother's brothers and spoke with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father. Jerobel was the nickname the men of Israel gave Gideon after he had destroyed the altar of Baal in his father's house. By the way, happy Father's Day. Lots of altar breaking going on in our text here. Uh, He contended with Baal, which is loosely what Jerob Baal means. Abimelech called a secret council with his uncles. The whole thing has the feel of a Godfather movie, with Abimelech making moves to consolidate his power over the family. Verse 2, please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem, Which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerobel reign over you, or that one reign over you? Remember, I am your own flesh and bone. Abimelech was the least of Gideon's sons, since he was part Gentile, and being born of a concubine rather than a wife, he had no legal rights at all. With Gideon dead, he was number 71 on the depth chart for leadership. So chances are he was not going to ascend on his own. And so he argued that for Shechem, it would be like all 70 of Gideon's Hebrew sons were lording over them. 
with no relief in the foreseeable future. It made more sense for them to throw in with someone related to them, and uh, Abimelech was trying to get them to understand this was a key moment in, his, in, in their history. And so he convinced them it was time to make this bold move. And so verse 3, And his mother's brothers spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. And their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, after all, he is our brother. Well, that's half true, but at least he was related to them. And so the power base here widened to include all the men of Shechem. They took up Abimelech's argument, convincing the town to back him. Verse 4, so they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal-Bareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. Baal-Bareth was their local interpretation of the so-called god Baal. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of information about Baal and the gods of the Canaanites, and a lot of it's contradictory. You have to understand, people are just making up gods. They're, they're just coming up with their, you know hey, you guys have Baal somebody, and we want to have our own version of Baal. And so they just made it up and made up stories, and it was all just an excuse to uh, do weird things. According to one source, Bareth refers to an erotic, obscene object that was carried around on your person, and that's all I'm going to say about that. And so these guys were weird. From the moment he first spoke to his uncles, everyone knew that in order to prevail... Abimelech would have to murder the sons of Gideon, all of whom preceded him in any succession. Thus, 70 shekels, one for each of his half-brothers. And so that was the going rate, murder for hire, a shekel. Uh, and you could get worthless, reckless men to kill for it. Worthless, reckless men, Abimelech's administration was off to a great start. He was backed by guys who were so addicted to pornography that they carried erotica around with them. He was funded in his bid to take over Israel by a pagan temple, and his military force was murderers for hire, and not even very good ones, just guys who were willing to do anything for money. And verse 5, he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Jerobel, on one stone, but... Jotham, the youngest son of Jerobel, was left because he hid himself. They were murdered in their father's house where his wives slept and his children played with their toys. Right there. On one stone indicates individual formal execution. One by one, probably in order of birth, the sons of Gideon were murdered. All but one, the youngest, who somehow had opportunity to hide and escape. After all, Worthless, reckless men aren't very reliable. And with all of the activity and the murders that were taking place and all, Jotham found opportunity to sneak away from some of those reckless men that were guarding him. And so verse 6, all the men of Shechem gathered together, all of Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. Beth Milo is believed to be a nearby Canaanite stronghold. They joined with Shechem, seeing it as the smart move in the current political climate. And so from a strategic point of view, this was all falling into place nicely for Abimelech. He uh, rallied the men of Shechem around him, killed all of his half-brothers, rushed in to fill the leadership void, and now was creating alliances with other Gentiles. 
Warren Wiersbe says the terebinth tree is probably the oak of Moray where the Lord appeared to Abraham and promised to give him and his descendants the land. Then he goes on to explain that it was near this site that the nation of Israel heard the blessings and curses read from the law and promised to obey the Lord. Jacob buried the idols here as he called his family back to God. And here Joshua gave his last speech and led the people in reaffirming their obedience to God. All of that sacred history was tainted by the selfish ambition of Abimelech. In one long afternoon, for his own selfish desires, he spoiled so many things that the Lord had ordered for the good of Israel. Anymore, it seems to me that folks don't think very much about establishing their own sacred history. I'm thinking particularly of the too many marriages I've seen go bust over the years as one of the spouses walks away from the Lord. Marriage is always a a good example to go to because it's something that we can all relate to and it's some place where a lot of warfare takes place. So if you think I'm picking on marriages or individual marriages, it just makes the case almost by itself. Anymore, people are not thinking about establishing a sacred history in their marriage. And what they walk towards is always their version of Baal. It's the fulfillment of some lust or some desire that ought to have been brought to the cross and crucified, but instead it was allowed to grow and reveal itself. It's Baal materialism or Baal personal freedom or Baal God wants me to be happy. Or bail, I'm in love with someone else. Those and many other excuses are what people come up with when they are confronted with what they're doing in the destruction of their marriage without biblical grounds. And, and it may sound extreme, but they're, they're creating an idol of their own, a type of bail based on that selfishness. Whatever ungodly, unbiblical reason they give for nagging on their marriage vows, it's a bail. And it all finds its roots in living for self rather than in dying to self and living for Jesus. Uh, Basic Christian principle 101, die to self, live for God. And yet, uh, where that's played out, it's not played out in the fact that I got saved Uh, and now everything's great, it's played out in the decisions that I make that reveal that I'm willing to die to myself to do what is right. And so Jotham is going to compare Abimelech to a bramble among fruit-bearing trees and vines. Brambles were dry weeds that could easily ignite, creating fires destructive to the many valuable fruit-bearing trees and vines. And so they were always a danger. And that's what selfishness does. It causes severe damage to those who are bearing fruit. And so if you find yourself now or ever carrying around with you some desire that is ungodly or unbiblical, get rid of that bale immediately. Otherwise, you run the risk of bursting into flame and damaging all that is beautiful and holy around you. All of you can probably think of lives that have been touched negatively burned by those who walked away from the Lord in order to pursue their own selfish desires. And what was being built as a fruitful, sacred history was completely overrun by something carnal. There's a saying in the Bible 
Let God be true, but every man a liar. You find it in a passage in Romans that, where Paul is making certain arguments. Standing alone, it means that what God says is true, no matter what you and I might think or say. His morals, his virtues, his commandments, they're true, no matter what a society might say. Marriage itself as an institution is being attacked. It's been under attack. Uh, we noticed it more the last 10 years, but it's nothing new. It's been under attack since the Garden of Eden. Uh, you know, obviously, when Satan came to Adam and Eve, it, it, it was a big, huge strategy, but part of it was an attack on their marriage. And he did a pretty good job of undermining their marriage because when God said, what happened here? Adam said, hey, it's her fault. She did it. And it, you've had marriage counseling ever since because people keep blame shifting and stuff. And so attacks on marriage are nothing new. Uh, however, we're in a time, obviously, when uh, they are very, very prevalent in our culture. God has given his instruction on marriage. What he says is true, regardless man making laws that contradict it. I mean, it's just as simple as that. Let God be true and every man a liar. And so I don't know how far that'll get you in a debate or a talk with somebody, but when somebody says, well, we think marriage is this, not what the Bible says, well, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, God is true and right, and everybody else is a liar that doesn't agree with that. And so that's kind of the basis from which we uh, move. If you contradict God in any way, in any situation, you're the liar, not him. His word is true. So let me be unusually blunt. If you are contemplating divorce and you do not have biblical grounds, it's sin. If you're thinking about a marriage that is outside biblical boundaries, that is sin. God is right. You are wrong. Instead of kindling that fire, live selfless and you'll contribute delightful fruit. That's the point of the remaining verses, or at least that's the application for us. Saturday morning cartoons meant Rocky and Bullwinkle. And that included fractured fairy tales as told by Edward Everett Horton. They were classic tales retold with a comic twist. I watched some of them just for fun. I considered it research uh, this week. But anyway, fractured fairy tales, love those things. The dark drama of Abimelech's bloody reign has one positive, Jotham's fable. It pictures for the men of Israel and Shechem a better life, a spiritual life, a fruitful life, if they will just follow the Lord and not Abimelech. And so verse seven. Now when they told Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and cried out. And he said to them, listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Those who have been to this spot say there is an outcropping of rock, a ledge, and the natural acoustics allow you to be heard in the valley below. Still mourning the murders of his brothers and himself in grave danger, Jotham holds out the possibility that God would be merciful to them if they will listen. Wow, this is interesting, the, the tone of his talk right from the beginning. It shows us that he has spiritual fruit in his life. He's obeying the Lord. He wasn't looking for his own worthless, reckless men in order to retaliate. He was appealing to something higher. If Abimelech could easily find a bunch of worthless, reckless men, I'm sure Jotham could have as well. 
and, and he, he could have promoted a war, but instead he must have sought the Lord or the Lord sought him at least and he submitted to the Lord and he said, go and tell this fable. And he starts off by saying, if you'll listen to the Lord, he will listen to you. And in other words, he will give them the forgiveness that they need and be their God. If you've sinned, if you're sinning now, listen for God's mercy. Flee to him, to his throne, to his will. At his throne, we always find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Now, the fable itself is straightforward. Uh, I'm not going to do the voices for you, but I see the olive tree, kind of a New York Italian. Uh, then you get the fig tree. That's going to be a Middle Eastern voice. And finally, there's a, a vine, uh, the grapevine. Uh, you maybe think French, but I'm thinking snooty Northern California, uh, you know, like Napa, where they have better wine. So anyway, you can hear that for yourself as we go through this. Uh, verse 8, the trees once went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men and go sway over trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go sway over trees? And then the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go sway over trees? Smart trees. They had no ambition to rule over other trees. They were more than content with what God had made them and the work that he had given them to do. Their only concern, each of them, is fruitfulness. We're not going to quit what we're doing in, uh, because we are producing fruit for God and men the way God intended. Now, we know from the New Testament that Jesus is pictured as a vine with us as branches. Fruit is the natural result of our remaining connected with the Lord. We sometimes describe it as abiding in Christ. Walking with the Lord, abiding in Christ, uh, abiding in the vine, this is how fruit is produced through our lives as we uh, hang out with Jesus. The one requirement upon us as servants is that we be found faithful. Be faithful and you will be fruitful. The fable is encouraging us to faithfulness that contributes to fruitfulness. The olive tree, the fig tree, the grapevine were content with what God had made them. They had no selfish ambition, no envy. Just keep cranking out olives and figs and grapes for God's glory and for the good of men. Uh, there's a teaching here that we could get into about God's gifting and God's calling in all of our lives. Uh, something, obviously, we want to discover in the will of God and with the help of God. There's too many Christians who want to be something that they're not. Uh, it happens a lot. I see it, be, you know, being uh, full-time in the ministry and hanging out with ministers and on that level um, even though we're all ministers of the gospel, but people in full-time service, seems like a lot of people, for some inexplicable reason that I don't understand, want to go into leadership and be a pastor or uh, you know, some kind of leadership in the church. And sometimes it's just obvious that a person doesn't have that gift. I mean, 
I'm not the final judge. Uh, it's not up to me. But over the years, I've encountered people, and others have come to the same conclusion. Here's a person that just isn't called to teach the Word of God. They don't have that gift. And no matter how much they try and have the ability to do it, or maybe are able to do it, they're just not gifted to do it. And um, I've told you uh, over the years about one particular guy down at my old church in San Bernardino, maybe the most gifted worship leader I had ever seen on piano. I mean, just a tremendous gift for leading worship, but he wanted to teach the Bible, and he was really terrible at it. Uh, he uh, would come in, uh, we had a home Bible study that he taught, and that was fine, but man, it was laborious. It was very difficult to listen to him. And all of us on staff and all of his friends, when he wanted to leave and go and start a church, uh, we said, please don't do this. It's not your gift. Not that we don't want you to leave. If you want to go and lead worship for somebody, great, but you're not gifted. Uh, and you know, finally, he kept saying he was, so we started telling him, well, if you're gifted to teach the Bible, then no one is gifted to listen to you. Uh, you know, it's just that simple. <laughs> And so it, that didn't work either, and so he went, and he happened to fail and uh, ended up leading worship, which is fine. I mean, God's gracious. But I also know individuals who their whole life, their whole Christian life, have fought against God, wanting to be something God hasn't made them. And it's, it's really important to say, I'm happy as an olive tree. Seems like I'm an olive tree. Seems like I'm a fig. Seems like I'm a grapevine. I don't know what kind of tree you would identify with. You know, banana maybe, who knows. But whatever tree God has made you in this fable world that we're talking about, be content. And especially don't want to be a tree that's ruling over other trees. We can once again use marriage as an illustration as well since we all relate to it. One thing I dislike at weddings, and you're free to disagree with me, is talk about how hard it's going to be about the tremendous difficulties the couple will face. It can be so negative, I wonder why some couples don't interrupt the service and change their mind. I mean, I've been to weddings before. Where, you know, when we do weddings, the bride and groom are right about here, and the pastor's right here, and it's like, they're, you know, they're this close, and it's going to be hard. You're going to have so many difficulties. There's going to be times every day when you want to give up and walk away, when love isn't there anymore, and you have to man up for, and say, please. I quit. Now, the time for that is in pre-marriage counseling. And I do try to discourage people from getting married. I say, are you sure you want to get married? Are you 100% sure that this person is in love with Jesus Christ and that when the chips are down, they're going to say, let God be true and every man a liar? That's what it comes down to. We've, over the years, we've had dozens of programs for Christian counseling. I've done it, or Christian marriage, pre-marriage counseling. I've done it. The Mondays have done it. Other people have done it. But what it eventually comes down to is you have to be married to a committed Christian who's going to want to tough things out because things do get tough. But once you get to the ceremony, hey, let's celebrate. Let's talk about the joys of marriage and child, children coming and all of those kinds of things. Having said that, once you're in the marriage, you do need to abide in Jesus. Times it might be hard or stressful, those are times that you produce fruit in the orchard of your marriage, not times to seek a way out. Make the decision to abide in him, in his will, rather than follow your own will. Let God be true. 
Then all the trees said to the bramble, verse 14, you come and reign over us. These people were desperate for a king. And behind some of this is the understanding that Israel always clamored for a king. God was their king. They needed no earthly king, but they wanted to be like other nations. They had this wrong desire and they were willing to take any king over them just to be like the Gentiles. If the Israelites had been walking with the Lord, the other nations would have wanted to be like them. I should not want to be more like the unsaved. They should want to be more like me. If that gets turned around, then we're in trouble. Verse 15, and the bramble said to the trees, if in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. If you search for bramble in the Bible dictionary, you might be redirected to search for thorns. There are many varieties of these thorn bushes. Think tumbleweed, only much stouter and with huge thorns. In fact, some sources say that the thorny crown plated and placed upon the head of Jesus was from a type of bramble. There's no shade from a bramble bush. Even a variety that grew tall enough wouldn't produce shade. And so the bramble thought more highly of himself than he ought to. He thought he could be king. You know, come and, and take shade in my branches, in my thorns. And so he's thinking more highly of himself. It's a great contrast. But in reality, he had the potential to cause damage to the mighty cedars. And he was threatening to destroy them if he didn't get his way. So he says, now that you mention it and you want me to be your king, I'll be your king. I'll get puffed up and think that I can shade you. And if you renege on this, I'm going to burn you to the ground. And so you're in for a penny, in for a pound now. And this is a great contrast between selflessness and selfishness. The fruit-bearing trees and vine were selfless and contributing good things to God and man, asking for no glory. The bramble threatened to upset nature and demanded recognition. Look into your heart. Weed out any attitude that is bramble-like. And so Jotham makes the application. It's pretty obvious, but he makes it anyway. Now, therefore, verse 16, if you have acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house and have done to him as he deserves, for my father fought for you, risked his life, and delivered you out of the hand of Midian, but you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his 70 sons on one stone and made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the men of Shechem because he is your brother. Jotham was diplomatic but direct. Of course they had not acted in truth and in sincerity. But sadly, they didn't care. Too many professing Christians don't act in the truth of God's word and they are insincere. For example, I hear quite often that obedience would require sacrifice and the person feels they have somehow sacrificed enough. I even say sometimes, uh, you know, to myself, I can't take it anymore, or that's enough. You draw a line. Not good when you're talking about sacrifice. Paul, in the book, if we believe Paul wrote Hebrews, in Hebrews, they were complaining about how much they were being persecuted. And Paul at one point says, hey, you haven't started bleeding yet. They haven't drawn blood yet. They've taken all your goods. They've ruined your careers. You have no livelihood. Quit complaining because you haven't been killed yet. There's more coming. Whoa, man. 
this Christian life is serious. Well, yeah, it ought to be because your Lord and Savior died for you and rose from the dead for you. He sacrificed his life so that we might be delivered from sin and death and hell. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he desired that the suffering of the cross not be necessary, but of course it was. Can you imagine Jesus getting up in the garden, waking up his disciples and say, hey, this is over. I can't take it anymore. I realize that God wants me to be happy. And so let's just go and finish, you know, the Passover meal. And when they come for me, I won't be here. Well, it's ridiculous to think like that. And yet, we give Christians a broad leeway to say things like that. And, and we say, well, yeah, they were under a lot of pressure. And in our own lives, we feel like we can make that decision. If you've acted in truth, verse 19, and sincerity with Jeroboam and his house to this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. Well, they could not rejoice. They might feel happy for a time, but there could be no settled spiritual joy. I mean, you know, it was, uh, I guess you could see that day as a great coup and a great victory for Abimelech. You know, everything he wanted, he had now. But I'll tell you one thing, one thing I've learned from watching the Godfather movies is that if you kill to get where you're going, you're going to be killed uh, later on unless you're the smartest guy in the room and nobody is. But if not, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo and let fire come from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. If you choose as your leader a murderer, he just might murder you. If you choose for your subjects, murderers, they just might murder you. And so I don't know what kind of rejoicing goes on in a house like that, where every night you're worried that you're ha gonna have your throat slit uh, in some coup for power. Verse 21, and Jotham ran away and fled, and he went to Beer and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. Jotham was never heard from again. Whatever his life had been like as the 70th son of an idolater, he had this one outstanding moment. It's what we remember about him. God gave him a word and he spoke it at great risk and through much personal difficulty. He presented this fable and its application right after his whole world had been shattered and all of his siblings murdered. I don't think we can assume that they hated each other or that there was any tension. I mean, they were brothers, like all brothers. I'm sure they, you know, had favorites and some that were on the other. But his brothers were all murdered by a half-brother who was taking power against God's will. Yet he presented this fable with dignity and integrity. Didn't seek retaliation or revenge. He left that with God. And arguably the most difficult moment in his life, Jotham remained connected to the vine and contributed this spiritual fruit. You know, God has asked some very difficult things of his servants in the Bible over the years. Um, Ezekiel it has some tremendous moments uh, where right after his wife dies, he has to continue to minister. Others are told not to weep when terrible tragedies are happening. It's not that God is cruel. It's that he needs them to represent him in his grace and in his mercy and to draw men to himself. And so Jotham, he stepped up when you think, I mean, this is big. 
to have your whole family. I mean, some of you, many of you, most of you have had tragedy in your family. And I don't want to dredge that up, but to be able to step forward and, and present a ministry like this in the face of a tremendous tragedy. You just killed my, 70 bro my 69 brothers and you want to kill me. And here's what I'm going to tell you. God can forgive you if you'll repent. But if not, you're going to be destroyed. So he was selfish in his obedience, a good and faithful servant. In a more spiritual setting, the men of Israel would have repented and sought to elevate Jotham to be king. For his part, Jotham would have refused, letting the Lord reign over them. Can you imagine that? That would be, you know how sometimes you can choose an alternate ending for a movie or for a television show? The alternate ending here would be, you know, you're right. Let's get rid of this snake, Abimelech, and make you king. And then Jotham says, I don't want to be king. Let's let the Lord reign. And everybody has, uh, you know, lives happily ever after. Seeing that, the men of Shechem would have repented and converted to Judaism. But none of that happened. But it wasn't on Jotham. He did what he was told. He was faithful and he was fruitful in it. Have you ever thought about how many Bible heroes seem like failures when they were fruitful? Jeremiah warned his countrymen for, I think, like 40 years. They consistently ignored him when they were not trying to kill him. Isaiah was told that his message would not be received by the Israelites. Isaiah 6, 8 through 13, God says, I'm sending you to the Israelites. They will not hear you. They will not receive your message. In that sense, you're going to be a failure. And yet he accomplished his ministry, and we would say he did it faithfully and therefore fruitfully. It was so bad that Stephen, the first martyr of the church, said to the Jewish leaders, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. And so Stephen could say, you can't even tell me a prophet that your fathers didn't kill. If you racked your brains, and now you're doing the same thing. And so, very difficult to be a servant of the Lord. But we're to be faithful, not successful. Faithfulness contributes fruitfulness, no matter what the brambles are doing to damage and destroy. A great way to conclude this passage is to ask the simple question, who do I want to be in this passage? Let's pray.